0: This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special final season episode of Wednesday's Women. This will be our final episode for season one, where we talked all about suffragettes, as you guys know. And at the end of this episode, we will give you a little bit of information about season two and what's to come. Um, But to wrap up our first season, we're going to spend today talking about all the suffragette organizations and how they all work together in the right to vote. So... To start off, I'm going to start with the American Equal Rights Association. This is going to be a little redundant for those of you that have been um, adamant followers of ours, but um, we did want to just make sure we are highlighting the importance of everyone that worked in these organizations, not just the people that led them individually. So
1: go ahead. I was just gonna say it's also a chance for us to mention the organizations we didn't get to talk about throughout the season. So if you noticed, um, a lot of our, a lot of the people we talked about came later in the movement. And so we talked a lot about NASA. Um, Obviously, we talked about the Congressional Union and then the National Women's Party, but there were a lot of organizations that started and split and joined that led up to the creation of these organizations that we talked about all season long.
0: So to start, we have the American Equal Rights Association. So the American Equal Rights Association was formed in 1866 with the purpose of securing equal rights for all American citizens. So the AERA was created by the 11th National Women's Rights Convention. So leaders of the women's movement had earlier suggested the creation of a similar equal rights organization through a merger of their movement with the American Anti-Slavery Society, um, but it took time for it to actually come to fruition. So the AERA conducted two major campaigns during seven And the AERA continued to hold annual meetings after the failure of the Kansas campaign, but uh, growing differences made it difficult for its members to work together. So disagreements about the proposed 15th Amendment when it occurred, um, did prohibit the denial of suffrage because of race uh, was especially sharp because it did also prohibit the denial of suffrage because of sex.
1: And then... So, that was like a big issue, and it is sort of where um, a lot of people say some suffrage movements that grew out of this are um, exclusionary. So, the split was... women who were sort of okay and just upset about the 15th amendment and then there were women who thought like black men should not have the right to vote before white women and their their thought process was more that they were superior and so they should receive their rights first the other group was just upset that women were still being excluded like they weren't mad that black men had the right to vote, they just felt it should have applied to black and white women as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've talked about that through different leaders. Some of the leaders have been open with those different ideas that kind of influenced the way they led their parties. Um, The Akronist AERA meeting in 1869 signaled the end of the organization and led to the formation of women's suffrage organizations, which we've spoken about. Um, and the bitter disagreements that led to the demise of the AERA continued to influence the women's movements in the upcoming years.
1: So one of the groups that came out of the AERA was the National Women's Suffrage Association. So it was um, founded in 1869 by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton immediately after the split of the American Equal Rights Association. Um, and so this was, this group was the more, um, just upset that women had been excluded from the 15th Amendment, but didn't technically oppose the 15th Amendment. They did have other issues with the AERA, specifically that they allowed men to hold leadership positions within the organization, and so the National Women's Suffrage Association felt that, um, men shouldn't have been given leadership roles. They should have been allowed to participate, but it should have been led by women because they were fighting for women's rights. So the founders, Anthony and Katie Stanton, um, were opposed to the 15th Amendment just on the basis that it didn't include women's right to vote. Um, The men, they allowed men to join this organization, but they could only participate as members because they had the issue with VAERA leadership. Um, so this group worked to secure enfranchisement through the federal constitutional amendment. Um, they believed that the best way to secure a federal amendment was to have each state approve it individually, so they still maintained states' rights, because um, that was a huge issue for the South. They felt like a federal amendment passing would take away the state's rights. So a state by state campaign allowed each state to make the decision on their own. But then eventually if you had like 40, well, they didn't have 50 States back then, but if they had had 50 States and 48 of them had signed on to the amendment, eventually it would just become a federal amendment. Um, this is, this is group is typically a, a referred to as the national association. Um, just because that's how it began, like how the little acronym began. So the National Association held its annual conventions in Washington, DC, where they concentrated on the federal government and then state representatives who worked in DC. So while their conventions were always in DC, they actually did most of their work out of New York City and they were established in New York City. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One, it's where their founders lived. So it just made sense. But the other idea is this is where a majority of wage earning women lived. So in NYC, you had a lot of domestic workers, you had workers in factories. Um, So you had women who had money to donate to the campaign. If they had set it up outside of DC, um, those women typically weren't working as much as the women in NYC. And so even though at the time, men were still receiving women's paychecks and offering allowances they did have some control of funding. So that was actually just the main reason for hanging out in NYC, but they felt that the convention was better served in DC. Um, eventually, the National Associ- the National Women's Suffrage Association does join with the next group we're gonna talk about, the American Women's Suffrage Association to form NASA in 1890. And that really maintained um, a following I would say in 1916 they started to see a waiver in their number of followers, but they maintained a pretty steady following right up until the 19th Amendment.
0: Yeah, so talking about the American Women's Suffrage Association, they were the other organization that came from the split of the AERA. Um, and they, as Taylor said, joined um, NASA in 1890. So this organization was led by Lucy Stone and Antoinette Brown Blackwell. And unlike the rival, NWSA, they supported the 15th Amendment that granted African-Americans the right to vote. So the organization was headquartered in Boston, a city known as a center of reform movements. And while NWSA advocated for a range of reforms to make women equal members of society, this group focused solely on the right to right, on the vote to attract as many supporters as possible. Um, Unlike the female-led NWSA, AWSA also included prominent male reformers among its leaders and members. And in 1870, Stone, which was one of the the leaders of this movement, established the Women's Journal, which quickly became a successful suffrage newspaper. Um, And the paper announced and recapped the association's meetings, discussed suffrage issues, and detailed strategies. So that newspaper lasted beyond the end of the suffrage movement, and it ended its final publication in 1931. Um, and one thing I wanted to add was in 1917, it was purchased by Carrie Chapman Catt um, and merged the women voter in the National Suffrage News to become known as the women citizen. So I, I thought that was interesting that, you know, it comes from a different location, but it seems like
1: everything all came together towards the end of... Fight for suffrage. It really did. They all did come together. Um, one thing I just wanted to briefly mention: there is some discourse on the idea of excluding men from leadership roles within the women's suffrage movement, and so um, people do tend to support AWSA, AWSA, mostly just because they were a little easier to support. So they supported the passing of the Fifteenth Amendment. Um, they allowed men in their leadership roles. But there is something to be said about, while it's important to be an ally for a group, it's important to be a good ally. And sometimes allies can speak over the actual people the group was formed for. Um, But eventually the AWSA and the NWSA do put their differences aside to form NASA, the National American Women's Suffrage Association in 1990. which continued to advocate in favor of women's suffrage in the United States. Its membership rose from 7,000 in 1890 to just over 2 million um, two years later in 1892, I believe. So this did become the largest voluntary organization in the nation. the only larger organization at the time were things like the federal government or the military, both of which weren't considered um, voluntary, just because you could be drafted to the military. Um, so Susan B. Anthony was the leader of NWSA and then became the leader of Nassau. Um, she did eventually hand off to Carrie Chapman Catt um, in 1990, so Susan B. Anthony kind of kept Kat as an apprentice and then put her into the leadership position. Um, in 1900, 19,000, that's a weird. So
0: she handed, you mean she handed over NASA in 1890?
1: No, is that what I said?
0: 1990, but she died in 1917.
1: Yeah, it's supposed to be, is it 1900?
0: That sounds more right to the timeline.
1: I know. Okay, so the number is 1900. Zero zero. Is it said 1900?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I thought you said 1990.
1: Okay, I'll just redo that. <laughs> so Susan B. Anthony was the longtime leader of the suffrage movement. She served previously as the leader of the NWSA, and when NASA was formed, she took over as president. Um, She served as president until 1900, at which time she sort of passed it off to Carrie Chapman Catt. Catt had apprenticed under her before then, and so it just seemed like the smoothest transition. In 1900, Catt implemented a strategy of recruiting wealthy members to the rapidly growing women's club. So whose time, money and experience could help build the suffrage movement. So again, the biggest hindrance the suffrage movement faced, other than um, really just sexism, was they didn't have any funding. So you weren't having wealthy male donors donate to you, you were making all your revenue off of the women who participated in the movement. And again, women didn't control finances back then. So Kat sort of revolutionized this idea of pulling in wealthy members. And so while the wealthy members may not agree with everything you're doing, um, she would sort of form committees to align with certain wealthy citizens. So after the Senate decisively rejected the proposed women's suffrage amendment to the US constitution in 1887, the suffrage movement had concentrated most of its efforts on state suffrage campaigns. When Cat again became president in 1915, so she did take time off between two presidency terms, adopted her plan to centralize the organization and work towards the suffrage amendment as its primary goal. So this was done despite opposition from Southern members who believed that a federal amendment would erode states' rights. Um, and back then, so typically, democrats were southern members back then so they the parties did have an ideological switch later on during this time the south was mostly democrats so you do see suffrage organizations aligning themselves with republicans and then eventually um disaligning themselves because the republicans will not vote for suffrage so, with its large membership and increasing number of women voters in states where suffrage had already been achieved, the NASA began to operate more as a political pressure group than as an educational group. So, they're moving now from like a nonprofit, I guess you could call them, into a lobbyist firm. So, they are shifting their movement pretty significantly from when they were formed. Um, so, one additional sympathy for the suffrage cause by actively cooperating with the war during World War I. Um, And when we talked about Alice Paul, we had talked about her sort of protesting Woodrow Wilson during the war. Um, That really helped Nassau, who was struggling amidst the National Women's Party, who was accomplishing quite a bit. It really helped people be like, oh, we don't love Nassau, but at least they're not picketing a president. So that was like a huge help to their... um, I guess, credentials. On February 14th, 1920, several months prior to the ratification of the 19th Amendment, Nassau transformed itself into the League of Women's Voters, which is still active today. We discussed um, Vote 411, all the work the League does to get people registered and educated. So technically, NASA isn't still present, but it has evolved into something that we have today.
0: So something that was occurring at a similar time in 1900 was um, the start of a group founded by Maud Wood Park and Inez Haynes Irwin to attract um, younger women to the movement and they called this organization the College Equal Suffrage League. So they worked with the National American Women's Suffrage Association in 1908, but they were also a separate organization. So Park, one of the founders, toured colleges around the U.S., talked to recent alumni in hopes that they would then encourage younger people in the university and high school students to join their movement. And she ended up touring many locations, and that eventually sparked the formation of new chapters in 30 states. Um, If you look up information about the College Equal Suffrage League, you can see they have a lot of history because there was 30 different um, subordinates working with the league. So one thing that the founder stated, and this was their purpose of their organization, and that's to help college women realize their debt to the wo- to help college women realize their debt to the women who worked so hard for them, and to make them understand that one way to pay that debt is to fight for the battle in the quarter of the field in which it is still to be won, to make them realize the obligation of opportunity, which I think is really neat.
1: It is because there is this idea that um, obviously by the 1900s women were attending higher education facilities, but that wasn't always the case. And so that is something that the suffrage movement, though we call it the suffrage movement because it was so heavily focused on women's right to vote, they also fought for women's place in higher education, Mm -hmm. which as someone who is in higher education right now, I'm very thankful for. Um, And I do think college organizations are a really great way to mobilize efforts. Absolutely. So another American organization, the Women's Trade Union League, was formed in 1903. Um, it did not start as a suffrage organization. It actually started as um, a union. So the idea with unions is you protect the people within the union from evil bosses, harsh labor laws, whatever. Eventually they do shift to the suffrage movement because they're working to protect their women's union. Women typically worked in manufacturing sites, textiles, things of that nature. They eventually decided that working for suffrage would be the best way to achieve what they wanted. Um, So the WTUL, was a US organization of both working class and well-off women who supported the efforts of women to organize labor unions to eliminate sweatshop conditions. So we still talk about sweatshops today, not usually in America, um, but in developing nations, they typically pay very little. Um, Your labor is intense and there's a lot of high risk involved. And so in America during the industrial revolution, that was very true. You worked for very small wages, you know, people lost arms and fingers and you know, machinery was dangerous. And so the unions came about to protect women in these areas. So the Women's Trade Union League played an important role in supporting the massive strikes in the first two decades of the 20th century that later established the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union and amalgamated Clothing Workers of America and in campaigning and continued to campaign for women's suffrage among men and women workers. Um, They also supported the 1907 Telegraphers strike. So there were a lot of strikes in the early 20th century. Um, And so the Women's Trade Union League was very supportive of these. So they modeled this organization after a British organization of the same name. So Britain experienced a lot of their issues. Simultaneous to us. So they fought for women's suffrage until two years. They received their right two years before we did They were having an issue with trade and labor Um, I am a huge supporter of unions. Most of the men in my family belong to a union. My grandmother was in a teacher's union. I think they're a great form of worker protection. That being said you also need federal statutes to protect your workers. So that's really what the Women's Trade Union League was fighting for. Yeah So
0: I think that's so important that they did that work, because you know, kind of a model for other organizations that are still fighting for those type of issues today, even.
1: Yeah, and there are still a lot of unions today that struggle to keep their members in and keep their members alive. <laughs> so organized um, the WTUL was organized in 1903 at the American Federation of Labor Convention and the AFL-CIO is still a very present, present organization today. So um, the Women's Trade Union League spent a lot of its early years trying to cultivate ties within the American Federation of Labor because that was the big um, like umbrella over all the unions back then. It still is today. Um, but the AFL wasn't as supportive of the Women's Trade Union League as they could have been. So by 1907, the Women's Trade Union League saw its purpose as supporting the AFL and encouraging women's membership within the organization. So they shifted from cultivating their own organization to trying and get this organization to merge with the AFL. Um, in its constitution that year, the Women's Trade Union League defended. Defined its purpose as assisting in organizing women into trade unions, such unions to be affiliated where practicable with the American Federation of Labor. Um, in response, the AFL mostly just ignored the league. They were not supportive necessarily, but they also weren't saying you can't sit with us. So um, would have been nice. <laughs> would have been nice to see them support them a little bit more, but. Um, Eventually, the Union League decided to hold its annual conference at a different location than the AFL in 1905. Um, Samuel Gompers, who was the president of AFL, was furious and refused to attend. Um, So they liked their support until they didn't have it. The League did push AFL towards a pro-suffrage position and did manage to organize more women into the Federation than any previous time. So the League was very beneficial to the AFL and the AFL was beneficial to the League even if it didn't appear that way because it gave them um, a louder audience and a louder voice. At this time, the Union League also began to work for legislative reforms. In particular, the eight hour day minimum wage um, and various labor protection legislations. So at that time, the United States Supreme Court was showing a lot of hostility towards economic legislation because that was something that they didn't necessarily feel the government should be involved in. They felt that should be really up to the states. Um, so only legislation that was geared towards women and children for special protections were was really even entertained by the Supreme Court. Um, And so it was this idea that, you know, protect your women and children more than your men. Um, They did eventually institute child labor laws much, much later. Um, So fortunately, you don't have to work at the age of five. Um, Some people, especially in the AFL, actually believed that federal regulations would hinder collective bargaining. So if you're not familiar with unions and collective bargaining, that's basically when you'll send your union representatives, who you elect, into the CEO's office or the manager's office, whoever is in charge, and they begin a negotiation of wages, um, various conditions of employment, and just general contracts, that have been organized by the body of employees. So the employees list complaints they have, things they want to be achieved. And they felt that if you were federally regulating these things, it didn't give them as much of an edge. So if it was said that you can only work eight hours, you can't say your employees will work 10 hours if you cover their health care because there's now a federal regulation. So there were actually people who were opposed to federal government stepping in. The Union League also began to work actively for women's suffrage around this time. Um, They worked very closely with Nassau, just mainly because that was the big organization at the time. Um, They held various campaigns and various meetings for Nassau leading up to the 19th Amendment in 1920. Um, They really saw suffrage as a way to gain protective legislation for women and to provide them with Dignity and other less tangible benefits that follow from political equality. So if there is a referendum that affects women and women don't have the right to vote, they're not being represented well in that discussion. Um, so the union league on the other hand was very mistrustful of the national women's party, which came around after Nassau with Alice Paul. Um, So they didn't like that the National Women's Party was more individualistic and rights oriented for women equality. They felt more um, just that women should have access to dignity and benefits, not necessarily that it was a right. So the Union League did actually strongly oppose the Equal Rights Amendment that was drafted by the National Women's Party. Um, basically on the ground that it would undo the protective legislation that the Union League had fought so hard to obtain.
0: Mm -hmm. And at a similar time, again, there was the Alpha Suffrage Suffrage Club, um, which the purpose of this organization was it wanted to fight for um, African-American women to have a voice and basically to make sure that they were being heard because at that time they were still being excluded from NASA. So it was organized in 1913 in Chicago, Illinois, and the initiative was started by Ida B. Wells Barnett, who we spoke about and Bell Squire. So it stated its purpose was to inform black women of their civic responsibility and to organize them to help elect candidates who would better serve the interests of the African-Americans in Chicago specifically. So I think it's really interesting that they made this organization and I'm sure there were other organizations that we didn't have a chance to talk about who fought specifically for African-American women's um, voice at this time, because I think it was really, really important. Because I mean, if as those of you that were here during our Alice Paul episode, it was still at that time hard for them to even like do campaigns together. So like for example, the Women's March that happened in March, the first year that they did it, the African-American women were asked to uh, march in the back. So it's really hard to see a progressive organization like NASA say that they want to fight for women's rights, but then not have women being intersectional. Um, but yeah. The, yeah, but the club was formed in Chicago, and whenever the—I'm going to start that over— The club was formed after women in Chicago were granted the right to vote in the year 1910, so 10 years earlier than national women's suffrage. So it fought against the white Chicago women who were trying to ban African-American women from voting altogether. And they also wanted to promote the election of African-Americans to public office, which I think is really nice. And I would love to see, I didn't look into it, but where Chicago was in terms of electing an African-American politician, like from the start of them working towards these initiatives in the 1910s to whenever the first African-American politician in Chicago was elected. I think that'd be a really interesting thing to look up.
1: It definitely would. I would also be interested to see that. I also think it's important to note that the Alpha Suffrage Club was more of an educational club, so they want to make sure African-American women knew how to vote in their best interest. obviously promoting African Americans into public office, those sorts of things. And so while we don't have any suffrage organizations around today that fight exclusively for suffrage of a group or minority, we do have a lot of education groups. So there's, um, I believe it's Vote Latina, um, there's one for Native American, and it's really just educating them on their right to vote and also how to vote in their best interest. So how to research candidates, and that's very prevalent today. Um, second to last group we're going to talk about was one of the last groups formed. It was the Congressional Union slash National Women's Party. So it did partake in a name change at one point. And most of you know it was led by Alice Paul and Lucy Burns. Um, the party had begun as the Congressional Committee of NASA. Um And as the congressional committee, the first big event they held was a national suffrage parade that drew approximately 8,000 women to DC um, on the same day as Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. So um, that was a very big deal. Inez Milholland led the parade on a horse dressed as a Greek goddess. Um, She was noted for her beauty and it really, Um, In the Iron Jawed Angels they make a mention of it being above the fold on the newspaper um, just in the idea that it overshadowed his inauguration. So following the National Parade Paul and Burns founded the Congressional Union in 1913. So following the National Parade Paul and Burns founded the Congressional Union in 1913. And the reason for forming this Congressional Union was Carrie Chapman Catt accused um, the Congressional Committee of embezzling funds. And so Paul and Burns obviously were very offended by this. They were not embezzling funds. They were raising a lot of money but they were using really effective techniques. And so the idea was Nassau felt like they should be receiving some of that money because they were the parent organization and Burns and Paul were not sending money back to them. So they do eventually split and form the Congressional Union. Um, from 1916 to 1920, the party advocated for the ratification of the 19th Amendment. I believe a year after it became the Congressional Union, it switched to the National Women's Party. Yeah, that sounds like- um, One of the biggest differences about this group from other groups was that they continued their suffrage efforts into the war period. And so that did make them sort of unpopular because all the other groups had sort of stopped and were rallying behind a president. But the National Women's Party didn't feel they could rally behind a president who wouldn't rally behind them. And so they did continue and that's kind of where Nassau fell back into good graces socially because they um, rallied with their president. So they greatly opposed Woodrow Wilson and continued to do so until the force feedings eventually led the president to advocate for suffrage. They'd become such a big deal in the media and people were seeing um, Wilson sort of fail to provide freedom in his own turf. How are you gonna go fight a war abroad if you can't provide freedom? Um, If you listen to the Alice Paul episode, you'll know that the silent centennials were the National Women's Party's members, they were all members of the National Women's Party, and after the 19th Amendment was ratified, the party moved on to advocating for other issues, including the ERA. I don't believe there is a National Women's Party anymore, but I do believe that it has local party groups. I think it merged in with another party eventually, Mm -hmm. but I'm not 100% sure on that.
0: We'll have the answer
1: somewhere here on the screen. (laughs)
0: So as Taylor just said, so the silent centennials were a sub-organization to the National Women's Party, and they actually picketed the White House from January 1917 to June 1919, which was during World War One, during Woodrow Wilson's presidency. And this last yeah. year the 19th Amendment was passed. And this initiative was led by Alice Paul. So to try and silence these women, they were arrested on the grounds of obstructing traffic. If you watch our Alice Paul episode, we go into a big deep dive into why that's not a real thing, um, but they actually gave them the choice to pay either $10 each or go to prison, and the women, knowing that they had done nothing wrong, decided that prison was the correct choice. So between June and November, 218 protesters from 26 states were arrested and charged with obstructing sidewalk traffic, which is bullshit, and of them arrested, 97 spent time in either the Okawana Workhouse in Virginia or the District of Columbia Jail. So They were in there, they were treated very badly. And because of all this, and because word got out that the women were being treated so badly, um, it influenced a major part of society in seeing like, oh, look at how terrible these women are being treated. Why isn't the president doing anything about it? So the publicity generated ended up making the White House look into maybe we should one, let these women go and two, really think about the 19th Amendment. So they ended up releasing the women and President Wilson lent his support to the suffrage amendment in January 1918. And the amendment was approved by Congress shortly thereafter, as we know. So now we'll move on to our discussion questions. So discussion question number one, which organization do you think was the most influential?
1: I have mixed feelings on this. So part of me feels that... I guess it depends on how you define influential because i do think the american equal rights association really got the ball rolling but i also feel like they didn't accomplish much because they had that little rift in them um i am torn between saying the national women's party and nasa quite frankly i think that had the national women's party not started the silent sentinels i don't think nasa would have Fallen into such good public graces. And I think they would have really struggled with the suffrage movement. I think it was the idea of the National Women's Party members were being tortured, Nassau was supporting the president, but also asking for the right to vote. I think them working together actually led to us getting the vote because Nassau did actually work on advocacy for the 19th Amendment alongside the National Women's Party when Woodrow Wilson went to pass it. but honestly, it might've been the silent sentinels. So under the national women's party that really got the 19th amendment passed. I
0: have a very similar answer. So I feel that without the silent sentinels and the work of the NWP, I don't think we would have gotten the right to vote when we did. I still think we would have eventually gotten the right to vote or at least Mm i like that. But I do think that they're um, more extreme Actions and advocacy, 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 uh, really pushed the administration of the time to accept what was real, which was that women are people too, and deserve the right to vote. So I definitely think influential in terms of that. It would go to the Silent Sentinels, but like Kayla said, I just feel like NASA was so. If you want to think influential in terms of influencing people, I'm sure it had a really wide, really wide group like from all across the nation for this party. So it's very similar to Taylor's answer, but I almost feel like saying I wish I could combine them both and make it one answer. Question two, which episode this past season was your favorite? So my favorite would definitely be um, Alice Paul, just because I do really like I like a winning story. I like, I like hearing about history when it works in our favor and when it works out for the right reasons. And so I really liked researching her because it was her organization that really, up until the end, fought aggressively and went above and beyond what was already being done to try to get women's rights. And I think it was just a really good story of perseverance.
1: I agree. I'm going to say my favorite episode was not my favorite suffragette we talked about. Mm -hmm. So my favorite suffragette was probably Alice Paul. Um, I just really liked her story. My favorite episode was actually Marietta Bones. Really? Why? Yes. So there's a couple of reasons. One, her being from Clarion, she will always have a spot in my heart. But two, I love a petty storyline. I love a petty woman like if a woman is out here being petty for practically no reason I'm always here for it and I just feel like Marietta Bone's storyline was very like I don't like Susan B. Anthony I wish I had the right to vote but I'm willing to give up my right to vote to make sure Susan B. Anthony does not get her hopes and dreams. B. Anthony died without it so yes she Marietta Bone succeeded. Marietta Bones and Alice Paul were the most successful women this season. I disagree with Marietta Bones' goal, but she was successful in it. (laughs) Just saying. So she was not my favorite suffragette, and I am sad to see her leave the movement, especially since she was from Clarion and will always have a special place in my heart. But I love a petty (laughs) storyline. I love a petty bitch. And then finally, what topics do you want to discuss
0: in future seasons of our podcast?
1: right now, I want to discuss the fact that um, Donald Trump is pardoning Susan B. Anthony. So she has been pardoned from her crime 100 years later. And though she never paid her fine, her debt is now cleared.
0: (laughs) Her debt of what was it? Wasn't it like a doll?
1: No. It was like $100. But that was actually like a lot of money back then. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really
0: want to talk about like, the politics of today, like, the women who are in politics today and more recently, I really want to talk about, like, women who are not necessarily considering themselves politicians, but are leading women, which I would argue is a form of, like, politicism, like, um, and this kind of takes us into our future season and what we're going to talk about. So, for example, September 9th, we will be having Dr. Dale Elizabeth Pearson, who is the president of Clarion University on our podcast. And like, that's one thing we're going to talk about women in higher education. And I would argue that that's a big form of poli- um, politics, because that's where we really create women leaders is in that higher education and in giving women more opportunities to learn and just
1: Yeah, I definitely think women in higher education is important. I would also like to see us, and I have the benefit, Caitlin and I have the benefit of knowing what we're discussing next season. Um, We do have our schedule lined up, but I do want to see us discuss menstrual inequality and how, um, so Caitlin did found the CU Menstrual Fund Um, which provides free sanitary products in women's restrooms. And I believe they're also in non-binary restrooms as well. Correct. Um, On Clarion's campus. So this is also a place that is close to Caitlin's heart. But I feel like I have experienced things said by typically men. And friends of mine have experienced things that are said, not necessarily in a way to disparage women, but in a fairly negative way. So, for example, a fairly common experience is women who are in high school who ask to use the restroom, being told no, and when they explain that, like, I have to, I'm on my period, they're told, can it wait? No, (laughs) it can't. So I would like to see us discuss that, because that is an inequality we don't often think about.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I'll be able to discuss, I did a qualitative research study on the implications of menstrual poverty and and menstrual taboos, so I can... that research to our discussion when we choose to do that um i also just want to talk more about um uh women in politics not even american politics like i want to branch out a bit like and see because those women also impact american politics by Mm -hmm. leading us like for example i'd love to talk about queen elizabeth i'm re-watching the crown as we speak the new season comes out Uh, October 18th, I believe.
1: So have fun with that, friends. (laughs) Um, No, I definitely like to branch out into women of international politics. Um, So we never specified that we would focus on American politics. We just specified for the summer season, we would only focus on American suffragettes. So I would love to see us do that. And I would also love to see us branch out into young activists, because I do think sometimes young people are Disparaged for their age for really no reason. I know people who are, you know, 50 some years old and they act like 13 year olds, and I know 16 year olds who act like they're in their 30s. Like your age does play some role, but you can be well educated and an activist at a fairly young age. And so I think sometimes they're wrongfully disparaged.
0: Another cool thing I'm looking forward to this season is talking about women who are leaders but not necessarily in the eyes of like how we believe politically. So I think that there is a lot of times, like we talked about Marianne Bones, for example, who started as um, a suffragette and then became an anti-suffragette. Well, we're also gonna talk about Phyllis Schlafly one of these episodes um, this upcoming season and I'm really stoked about it. For those of you that don't know, she fought um, against the ERA very strongly Um, There's an entire TV show about it, and I'm just real excited about talking about her, because even though I don't agree with her politics at all, she was definitely a woman in politics and a leader.
1: Mm -hmm. And I do think that is something Caitlin and I try, we try to pick from all over the ideological spectrum. Um, Obviously, there are some people where if I don't agree with anything they're doing, I'm not going to advocate for them to be on the show, but there were things Phyllis Schlafly did that I can sort of agree with. There were just a lot of things she did that I don't agree with.
0: Well, and I think the other reason why I want to talk about her so bad is she is a ERA, is an ERA woman in all senses of the word, except for what comes out of her mouth. She was a woman out in the working world. She was, she became a lawyer late in her life. She led a party. Like, you know, there was, she's definitely a political woman. You know, there's in every sense of the word except for what came out of her mouth.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. So, that being said, next season starts next week, August 26th. August 26th. Um, and I think it is. You're right. I'm wrong. I have the advantage of having a weekly calendar in front of me, so I saw that this Wednesday was the 19th. just had to do some math, which is not my strong suit. One of the reasons I went into the social sciences. I'm not good at math. Um, So we will kick next season off with a friend of ours, Katie Robinson. She is a Campus Vote Project Fellow as well as the Secretary on the Student Senate which Caitlin and I both serve on. Next week will be the second week of class for Clarion University, and it will also be student senate election time. So we will have her on to discuss her work with Campus Vote Project, as well as her work organizing a small scale election on a college campus. Yeah, and uh,
0: we will also make sure that, for those of you that do go to Clarion University, you will have, different locations on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where you can go and apply to be a student senator and work with us to do some good in our campus. And hopefully you'll really enjoy next week's episode. I'm really excited because Katie's a peach. She is. All right, so this has been the first season of Wednesday's Women. I want to thank everybody for sticking with us, and we look forward for what is to come.
1: Bye, guys. This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engage Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thanks for listening, and make sure you go out and register to vote.